Hello, Redemption Church. Uh, and this morning, as we gather together, we are going to continue looking at the book of Malachi, specifically Malachi chapter 2. But as we get started, um, let's take a moment and pray. God, uh, I know that many of us this morning, our hearts and minds are probably uh, still occupied with the elections of our nation over the last week and all the goings on around that election. God, but I pray that even now, that we could take a moment and just reflect and dive into your word to see what you would have for us as a people. God, I, I thank you that our political systems have nothing to do with the establishment and the continuance of your kingdom. God, I am so grateful that you are sovereign. And God, I find it so comforting that in the midst of your sovereignty, you are gracious and loving and merciful. And so, God, right now, I pray that you would help us to find comfort in you and peace in you. Help us to find the peace that Jesus has promised and help us to find that in you. And God, we ask this in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. Amen. As we come to Malachi chapter 2 this morning, I want us to understand the larger context of what's going on in Malachi. We've talked about the timeline of the minor prophets many times as we move through these books. And specifically with Malachi, the timeline is significant. Malachi is speaking to the people of Israel probably 100 years or so after they've returned from the Babylonian captivity. And prior to Malachi coming on the scene, Haggai and Zechariah were prophets to God's people. And somewhere between those two prophets and Malachi, both Ezra and Nehemiah have been on the scene uh, to help get the temple re rebuilt and to help get the walls around Jerusalem rebuilt. And there's this specific sequence of events that happens in the book of Nehemiah around chapter 8. God's people gather together and Ezra begins to read the Torah to them, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he does this for hours and hours and hours. And the people of God hear his word read so they confess their sins and they repent. And eventually they come before God sort of uh, making a covenant with God, maybe reestablishing the covenant that already exists with God to, to live with God and with one another the way that God always intended when God um, laid out his covenant with, with his people when he brought them out of Egypt during the Exodus. And at its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more people or two or more parties. Human covenants, marriage as one example, um, is the type of covenant that falls under this general definition. But a divine covenant, and specifically a divine covenant within the context of Scripture, is a covenant where God sovereignly establishes a relationship with his people. And that's what we see throughout the Old Testament, right? God making a covenant with Abraham to bless the whole world through his offspring. The covenant that God makes with his people when he brings them out of Egypt that I referenced a minute ago. The covenant that God makes with David that there would be someone on the throne of David forever. Or specifically that the Messiah would come from the throne of David, from his family line. And in the covenant that God makes with his people, God binds himself by his own oath to keep the promises that he's made. And in doing so, God 
also defines the ways in which his people are expected to worship him and love one another and live justly with their uh, with the people around them and love their neighbors and do all these other things. And so in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, among other things, God's people reaffirm their covenant relationship with God by telling God they'll live in the ways that he's asked them to. And specifically, right, they covenant to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, including all of his rules and statutes. They covenant to bring God their first and best offerings and sacrifices as a part of their worship. They covenant to put God's temple first with their tithes. They covenant to honor God with their marriages. And then we fast forward several years from the book of Nehemiah to Malachi chapter 2, and we see things like this. Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. The dung of your offerings and you shall be taken away with it. And then verses 7 through 9, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." Finally, verses 11 through 16, Judah has been faithless an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he, not, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Verses one, through three, verses 1 through 3, there is some really strong language used here. Language about spreading dung on the faces of the priests, taking the contents of what exists in the stomach and intestines of the sacrifices that are being brought to God and spreading those contents on the faces of the priests. 
Remember in Nehemiah, they pledged to bring God their best offerings. They pledged to uh, give their best to the temple. But in Malachi, they are now bringing less than their best. They've defiled God's They've defiled God's temple in the process by bringing sacrifices that are not worthy. And so God says he'll make these priests unclean in return for allowing his temple to be despised. And in verses 7 through 9, we see how the priests have shown partiality in their teaching. Even though not long ago in Nehemiah, they had pledged to observe all the commandments of God, even all the statutes and all his rules. And in verses 11 through 16, we see, I'm sorry, in ver- yeah, verses 11 through 16, we see how they are dishonoring God through their marriage relationships, which is, a, which is at odds with what they said in Nehemiah, where they pledged to honor God with their marriages. The men of Israel are willingly marrying women who worship other gods and beginning to worship those other gods themselves being idolatrous. And at the same time, they are divorcing their wives without merit instead of fulfilling their covenantal promise to their spouses, right? God intended for the marriages of his people to reflect the covenant relationship that he has with them, a covenant where he upholds his promises and he cares for his people and extends grace and love and mercy We see that in scripture in places like Isaiah 54 verses 4 and 5 where God says this, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. But here in Malachi, the men of Israel, they are living differently than God intended, willingly neglecting their covenantal marital promises and relationships that were intended to point to God. And all the while they are crying out to God, wondering why he isn't accepting their worship and their sacrifices. But why is God not accepting their worship? Five times in verses 10 through 16, God says of his people that they are faithless, that they have broken faith. Five times he says they have broken faith. But they haven't just broken their faith in the way that they worship, though they've also broken faith in the way that they've lived. They've broken faith in in the sacrifices that they're bringing, but they've just even more so broken faith in the way that they are not living in the manner that reflects the grace and mercy and love of God. They've neglected to treat God as holy both with their sacrifices and they've neglected to treat God as holy in the way that they live on an everyday basis in the way the men of Israel were willingly disregarding their spouses and treating them unjustly in the way that they were entertaining false gods committing idolatry. A lot of times the focus of the first part of Malachi 2 is on how the priest didn't faithfully teach God's word. So preachers use that text to talk about how we shouldn't neglect the preaching of God's word lest we end up like the people in Malachi. 
And the second part of Malachi 2 gets used in the discussion of divorce, and in some way it becomes just a proof text for certain positions on divorce. And I in no way intend to minimize the importance of those discussions and topics. Understanding and knowing the importance, I mean, understanding and knowing God's word is vitally important to the Christian life. And there's no excuse for a modern day Christian to not fully dive into God's word. I think most of us like to water ski across the top of God's turn, when in reality we should be putting on our scuba gear and diving in. An appropriate understanding of marriage and divorce is critical for the church today, especially in light of the fact that God views his relationship with his people like a marriage, and that marriages within the covenant community are intended to point to God. But the crux of the matter in Malachi 2 is that God's people were living sinful lives, entertaining idolatry being unjust even to their very own spouses, all while continuing to ritually and externally go through the motions of worshiping God. God, yes, we're divorcing our wives, but we're showing up to the temple, God. We're offering the sacrifices that the priests say, okay, why aren't you listening to us? And all the while, God is looking at those sacrifices and saying, I want to spread the dung of those sacrifices on the face of the priest who are allowing this. The people of God are saying, God, we're doing the thing. We're showing up to the temple. We're worshiping the way we think we should worship. We're bringing our sacrifices. We're doing all the things. We're crying out to you. I mean, yeah, we may be committing idolatry on the side, we may be kicking our wives to the curb, but, but God, we're showing up and doing the thing. So what's the problem, God? Why aren't you honoring our worship? Church, do you remember verse 10 of chapter 1 last week? It says this, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God said to his people, I would rather you close the doors of the temple and not show up at all than to ritually worship me while you are living in an idolatrous and unjust manner. Don't miss the weight of that. When God delivered his people from Egypt and established his covenant with him, he had a lot to say about how his people should worship him. He talked about the furniture that should be in the tabernacle. He, he cared about the priestly garments. He cared about the sacrifices and the celebrations and the festivals. And there's so much throughout those first five books of the Bible about how God's people are to worship him. And it was all intended for God's people to see God as holy and to recognize his position of preeminence and to respond appropriately. But when God's people were doing those religious things in the book of Nehemiah, but living unjustly, what does God say? God says, I'd rather you just close the doors and stop it. Church, I think that there are two things we need to understand and take away from Malachi chapter 2. The first one is this. In 2020, God still expects his people to live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. That expectation that God has for his people has not changed. 
And this year, because of the COVID pandemic, our times of corporate worship have looked completely different from anything we ever expected. Our doors have very literally been shut. And even now, as we begin to, to gear up to come back together for worship in a few weeks, we are missing the opportunity that God has put in front of us this season if we don't realize that our lives away from corporate worship are just as important to God as our times together. We all miss our times together, but our life away from our times together is worship as well. And while our doors have been shut, God has been calling us to evaluate whether our lives reflect the justice and peace and mercy that are ours because of Jesus. And so the first invitation for us today is a call to examine our lives and to see if we, like God's people in Malachi, if we are living in such a way that warrants God saying, I'd rather you just close the doors and walk away than come back and worship me. Number two, God still expects his people to live justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. But he's provided a way for us to do that through the work of Jesus. We can't do that apart from Christ, from the moment of his very first breath, Jesus marched towards the cross because God is unwilling to compromise his justice in order to deliver his forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave so that death and sin and Satan would be defeated for all time. And so that God's kingdom would be victoriously established in peace and righteousness and justice. And so that God would gather a people to himself defined by peace and justice and righteousness. And so if God intends justice and peace and righteousness to be defining characteristics of his kingdom people, then what does that mean for you and I right now? That means that we cannot celebrate and proclaim the message of God's grace while we do what God has refused to do, close our eyes to the injustice around us. We can't celebrate the cross where God's justice is satisfied. We can't celebrate the empty tomb where God defeats all of our enemies and refuse to acknowledge and act upon the injustices of our world. The cross forbids me the cross forbids us to close our eyes to any form of injustice, be it personal, corporate, governmental, ecclesiastical, or systemic. There should be no community that is a more present, active, and vocal advocate for justice than the community that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear what I'm saying. We absolutely must cling to and celebrate and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. The gospel saves us, defines us, makes us into a people, and it sends us on a mission. But it also calls us to align our hearts with the heart of God. And so the second invitation this morning is this. Run to Jesus that our hearts might be aligned with the heart of God. Run to Jesus that God might not find us faithless. 
run to Jesus knowing that there's no way we can be faithful apart from the work of Christ in our lives. Let's run to Jesus openly admitting that we need him. Let's trust Jesus with everything so that mercy and humility and justice and righteousness might flow through us. And as we turn to trust Jesus, he's going to naturally call us to stop trusting our idols. To remove our trust from political systems, from our wealth, from our jobs, from our positions of influence, from the significance we find in the way others see us. And to simply trust Jesus that he might find us faithful. Church, if Jesus were to look at us as a body of faith, as individual believers, as the community of faith known as Redemption Church, would God find us faithful? Or like the people of Malachi, would he say, you've broken faith? Would he say that about us once? Would he say that about us multiple times like he does in Malachi? Or would he look at us and find a faithful people? Church, I am begging you, I'm begging us that we might run to Jesus and trust Jesus completely, no matter what it costs us, that we might be found faithful. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that because of Christ, you are able to look at us and find the people that are faithful. God, we could never be who you want us to be apart from the work of Jesus. And God, you are so gracious and loving and merciful that you have done the work for us through Christ. God, thank you that we can be rightly related to you because of Jesus. And thank you that we can be found faithful because of Jesus. God, thank, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that Jesus promised us that enables us to live in a way that shows justice and righteousness and mercy and love to the world around us. God, help us to be found faithful because of Jesus. God, may you be honored and glorified in that. God, may we find much joy in that. And Holy Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.